Heavenly Father, we have heard wonderful testimony tonight from Dan. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have given us more days, Lord, to share with the dark world around us, those who are lost, that there is life in Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again from the dead. Father, we know that time is short. Our Lord Jesus is returning, and it could be any day. Help us to be ready. May our lamps be burning. And may we continue to grow by thy precious word. We ask now that you would speak through it to our hearts tonight. We ask and pray in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you'll take your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're picking up where we left off in this uh, short series. And it's all about the seven churches found in Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3. And as you recall, Jesus Christ spoke directly to John And he had seven messages to give the first century church. And each one of these churches here that we find in chapter 2 and chapter 3, they were literal churches that were in existence during that day. They they were in existence that day. and, And much like today where if we were to go around and see the different uh, kinds of churches and and different locations where churches have been started. Uh, You'll find some in rural areas like Jonestown, or you can go into like New York City or Philadelphia, and you see churches that God has planted there. And wherever they ha- God has planted them in those cities or areas in our country, each one has a culture. Now, there is one general worldly culture that we are all uh, can feel and are part of through the Internet, through access and everything else. And, and those who, uh, who promote uh, the world and all its, uh, its pleasures, but... We find in all these churches that uh, where they are plays a role many times in in the testing that comes to them. And, and we're going to see that as we come to this third church we're going to look at tonight, and that is the church of Pergamum. The church of Pergamum, and that is found in chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. 12 through 17. And so remember, it's the Lord Jesus speaking here. And look at verse 12 with me. As he begins to write this letter, which would be then written down by John, and then taken by someone to that church for it to be read there. And to the angel... Of the church in Pergamum, write, The one who has the sharp two edged sword says this. We'll stop there for a moment. 
So we, ha- we have the, uh, the opening statement, which is used of every letter that is being written, which, where um, the angel comes, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, the Lord comes and speaks to, notice they use the word angel here, but really the word is translated messenger. And so uh, many good Bible teachers believe that, uh, that Jesus is speaking when he says, and to the angel of the church, many believe that he's speaking to the leadership of the church, an elder in that church who is overseeing, or a pastor, so, or, but the spiritual leadership of the church. That's the one who would receive the letter when it comes. And so this came, would come to uh, one of the, the pastors or elders of the church. And so Jesus says to that angel, that messenger of the church in Pergamum, write this. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now that's that statement right there is going to tell us a lot. Now, first of all, um, I want to uh, take a quick look at the city of Pergamum, okay? Again, we want to understand the culture therein and what, what, what kind of persecution or testing they are going to face. So the thing about Pergamum, well, it was not far. It was about 50 miles uh, north of uh, Smyrna. And remember, we had looked at the city of Ephesus first, then this, I'm sorry, the church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, and now the church at Pergamum. The thing about this city is it was a very fluential city, and it was very uh, religious, very religious in idolatry. And three major influences in the city. Let, uh, let me share those with you. The one is the temple of Aculapius. Now, that, that, that's a temple there that was built to the mythological god of healing. It was a god that, that, that they believed in, in, in a super, uh, one particular god that brought healing. But they believe that that God is found in snakes. So it was a snake God. Okay? And so they had thousands. In this temple, they would have hundreds and hundreds of snakes crawling all over the floor. It reminds me of Indiana Jones. <laughs> and I remember those snakes in that film. But, but you can imagine... That, that, that they just let the snakes loose. Now, they were all non-poisonous snakes that they, they would let loose. But, but that was in honor to the god, the snake god, which was the god of healing. And they would bring people there and do all kinds of, of rituals over them to thinking that, that, was gonna, that the god of healing, the snake god, was going to bring healing to them. But it was very dark magic that they were using, black magic. And of course, um, when we think of the symbol of the snake, um, who do we think of? The, uh, the devil, 
Satan. Satan, of course, is the serpent in the, in the uh, garden. And so uh, he has been called the great serpent, the old serpent Jesus referred to him as. So this was one of the great temples. Another one was the temple to Zeus, the god Zeus. <clears throat> and there was an altar that was over 40 feet high to the god Zeus, which he, he was the father god. You know, he was like the god over all the others. He was the highest, the most, supposedly the most worshipped, the greatest god, Zeus. And this, uh, as they did archaeological dig and they realized how big it was, uh, this wa- they found out that this was one of the seven wonders of the world. This, uh, this temple to Zeus here in the, the city of Pergamum. So you have the worship to Zeus. And then the third one, <clears throat> but it seemed to be the most powerful one, was a temple that was built strictly for the emperor of Rome. It was a temple where people would come to worship Caesar. And so basically, well, think of it in our culture, okay? Imagine suddenly you see a temple being built in Jonestown. And it was a temple to worship Joe Biden. And, and so people would come to worship the president and the government would be, uh, be enforcing it. They'd, they'd be enforcing it. And Rome was enforcing this religion on, on the subjects that everybody had to worship the emperor. And at this particular time, it was Domitian. His name was Domitian. And he was, uh, if, if people said no to the worship of, 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 this, uh, of the Caesar uh, and refused to worship uh, in any way and say, no, I worship somebody else, I worship another god like uh, one outside the, the gods that they worship, uh, many gave their lives for, for this. But this is key as, as we look into the, the culture now of where the church was located. So imagine, this is where the church is trying to grow. This young church, but they're being tested. But they are right in the center of it. And this phrase that the Lord Jesus uses here, he says, he's, he speaks of a, the double-edged sword. The double-edged sword. Turn to Hebrews 4 with me, if you would. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> and we find that the writer of Hebrews speaks of the Word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword. So if you have it, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. There it is. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intents 
of the heart. Here in this one verse, we are presented with the Word of God. What is the Word? What is the best way the writer could describe the Word of God that we were talking about that, that we have the privilege of sharing and giving out to the world? The, the Word. And what is it, he says? He says, the, the Word is living and active. This is, not, this is a, lo, a living book. It's not a dead book like all the other books in the world, but this one is living and active. It means it's working. It works. God takes his word and he sends it forth and it begins to work. And what the writer of Hebrews shares is that the word of God is very much like a two-edged sword. And the two-edged sword, that... In, in battle, when you went into battle with a two-edged sword, you could swing it either way, either way you went, and it was, they made sure their swords in ancient times were extremely sharp, and you would swing it either way. It didn't matter where you swung it. You had the sharp edges on both sides that you could cut either way, and this is sharper the writer says, this, word, this sword, the word of God, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. You can have the sharpest sword you can make. I don't know how many of you, you men uh, sharpen your hunting knives at home or any go through, you know, those of you who are ready to hunt, you sharp, sharpen your knives when you're ready to go. And you, or if you're a fisherman, I know fishermen have to have really sharp knives to be able to uh, cut, cut up the fish. But here, nothing is sharper than the Word of God. And what does it do? It, it pierces through as far as the division of the soul and spirit. What can do that? Nothing but the Word. Of both joints and marrows. And what does it do then? Able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's the wonderful thing about proclaiming the Word of God. Whether it's through Danny uh, at the Bible tent, at a car show, sharing the word of God, he speaks it, he gives it, or it's um, those of you here tonight who are in a Sunday school class, you've been teaching those kids for years. What have you been teaching them? You've been teaching them the word of God, And, and God has given you the great privilege of teaching children here at Jonestown Bible Church. I don't think there's any greater ministry that God could, could call a person to than children's ministry. And I just look out here and I see dear Rose. And I, I just can't help but think of the years and years that she has. I know she doesn't like me to point her out. But, but that God has used her. She, God gave her a calling and a gift to be able to communicate the word of God to children. And so many have come to Christ and that, that sharper than two-edged sword word of God that, that Rose would wield at those good news clubs would pierce through the hearts of the children and their minds and their thoughts and intents of the heart so that many of them would suddenly begin to understand who God is, who Jesus is, and be drawn to him as the Holy Spirit uses the word. So here, we, here is a reference to 
the word of God being active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we know that when Jesus uses this term, uh, it, it's speaking of um, his word, okay? Turn back with me to Revelation 2 then. If we go back to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to find that Jesus will use this same statement about a sharp sword coming out of his mouth <clears throat> later on uh, near the end of this letter to the church. But this is the one. <clears throat> so Jesus is describing himself. I'm the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And that speaks of the word of God that comes out of his mouth. And we know from John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, Jesus uh, uh, his name is referred to there as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. But then now we come to verse three and uh, I'm sorry, verse thirteen and fourteen. Verse thirteen and fourteen. Now we come to <clears throat> Jesus commending the church here at Pergamum. They're doing something right. They're glorifying God in this way. So look at verse thirteen. Jesus says to them. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Here, Jesus says to the church, I know where you live. You know, and, and it, this can, we can take encouragement from this, that sometimes we think, Lord, do you see me? Do you, uh, do you know what I'm going through? What kind of trials and testing, Lord? Uh, and sometimes you feel maybe like God has, has forsaken you or, or hasn't, hasn't been watching over you. And uh, this, this statement encourages my heart. And because he, he, he's saying to the church, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know what you're dealing with. And so it is the Lord Jesus knows exactly where you are and what you're dealing with. He knows where you dwell, and he's watching over you, and he is there with us to never leave us nor forsake us. So Jesus encourages them that he has his eye on that church. And with the eye of Christ on that church, he commends them for this, faithfulness. He commends them for faithfulness to Christ. They hold fast to his name. Notice, they hold fast to his name and did not deny my faith. So Jesus says, you've hold, held fast to my name, and you have not denied the faith in the midst of where? In the midst of where Satan's throne is. That has to be, if Jesus uses that term to describe the city of Pergamum, it has to be one of the darkest places of the, that time. That there was darkness, and we shared all the the temples and and that were were uh, all around them, and the culture, the worldly culture, and the idolatry, which everything that comes with idolatry, 
had had just uh, overwhelmed people in that city. And you can imagine that coming out of that culture to trust Christ and, and, and hear the gospel and be saved. And now you're, you're trying to uh, live for Christ. You've come out of the world, but yet the world and its wickedness and Satan is still right at your doorstep. It's not like they got saved and they says, okay, we, we're going to leave this city. Let's go find, let's go out in the country and find, find a place where, where, uh, you know, we can, these, these people had, had jobs there, they had family. And, and so the church, it was going through persecution as we see, as we see here, because Jesus speaks of one particular man that was, that was persecuted and then martyred for his faith. But here the, we have the people who are under intense pressure by the culture and the world that they live in. Temptation is there. And it's Satan's throne. It's, it's where Satan dwells. Of course, uh, the Apostle Paul spoke of, of Satan in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He called him the God of this world or he's called the prince of this world. Satan is still allowed to have power. And I love the way Nick brought forth the message this morning from Job. <clears throat> and and he, he shared how Satan has power, but it's only given through the permission of God, that God allows him to, to, to still work and, and do evil things. We don't understand why. Why does God allow it? Why would God still allow his saints to be persecuted by Satan? Just like Job, God allowed it to test him. It is all for the testing of our faith. And so these people, their faith was tested, but they passed the test. And then we see it speaks of this man, Antipas. Antipas. Now, we don't know much about this, this man, really. Um, there's some traditions uh, that are mentioned about him, but we know one thing, that he did not compromise with the world. He did not, he did not deny Christ. And it is believed that Antipas denied he was brought before the Roman authorities in the city of Pergamum. He was part of the church. He was brought forth because uh, for maybe his position in the city, but he was brought forth because of his denial of the emperor as God. He refused to worship him. And therefore, it is believed that he was martyred for his faith because he refused to accept Caesar as king. Caesar as God. And many have, have died because of that very, very same stand that was taken over the centuries. They, they, they stood for Jesus Christ and people would come to them and say, no, you bow the knee. Much like we remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Satan was there. No doubt Satan had a throne there, there in uh, where the in Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
were told to bow down and worship that great image of Nebuchadnezzar. And there was the so-called Caesar of that day. And what did they do? They, instead of bowing, they stood. And you could just see them standing above all the others and easily noticed. And, of course, they were thrown into the fiery furnace for their, their stand and their faith. Jesus is commending this church for their faithful witness, holding fast to the word of God, okay? Holding fast to their faith in Christ that Jesus is the Son of God. So they were holding fast to that. And I thank the Lord that Jonestown Bible Church, we still hold fast to that. So this was a a commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ. But now Jesus, with every church, apart from the church of Smyrna that we saw, he has something against them. He has something against Pergamum, the church here, in an area that they weren't doing well with, that they weren't honoring God. There was an area that they weren't honoring God. Look at verse 14. But, boy, when Jesus uses the word but, you've got to pay attention because that means on the other hand, he's saying, I have a few things against you because you have there there in the church, some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Acts of immorality. And that ties in with verse 15. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans. And the Ephesian church had the same problem with these so-called Nicolaitans. We, and it is believed that they, they were uh, people who had some truth, but they, they had believed in, in the license to do anything you wanted to. Yes, you could be a Christian, but you can go out because you're saved. You can go out and do anything you want. And, and he, so he mentions this about these, this kind of doctrine was being promoted by these Nicolaitans, people who are holding to this teaching of anything goes as, a, hey, you're a Christian, you're saved, you're in under grace, anything goes. Then he also, but then he mentions before that, he mentions the teaching of Balaam. And if you'll turn with me, we want to kind of get an understanding of what the teaching of Balaam is. We have to go back to Numbers, Old Testament. If you'll turn with me to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25. And here we have the story of Balaam. Now, when you think of the story of Balaam, uh, when when, what's the first thing you you recall? What what's the thing you mo- remember most about Balaam? Hee haw, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Except the donkey wasn't hee hawing anymore; he was talking. Yes, as kids, we remember that God caused that donkey by Balaam was riding on to talk, and to get a message through to Balaam. Balaam Balaam was going. 
to go forth. He was making money. He was a prophet that was making money off, you know, being a prophet and going around blessing or cursing people. And King Balak of the Moabites, he, he got a hold of Balaam and he said, hey, this, this group out here in the wilderness, these, uh, these, these Israelites, I'm going to pay you a lot of money if you go curse them, put a curse on them. And so he got on his donkey and went, and that's what he was supposed to do. And, of course, we know the story that instead of, of cursing them, God got a hold of them, sent them the message, no, you are going to bless them. So when he, get up, he got up on the mountain and looked over on the Israelites, he said a blessing instead of a curse. Okay. But now we, we come to chapter 25, and we're going to see what Balaam does. Balaam still wants to get paid. He, he you know, the king is paid him to curse them. But he, he backed down off that. So he figures, I didn't curse, I blessed them instead. Balak was pretty upset. So Balak figures, well, I, I can still get paid if, if, if somehow I can uh, bring trouble to the Israelites. So how does he figure on bringing trouble into the camp of the Israelites? Look at verse 1, Numbers 25. When Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with who? The daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And look at verse 3. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And so Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to the Baal of Peor. And so that's what happened. We're not going to take time to go through the rest of this, but try and get the picture. Balaam says, well, then if I can't send a curse to them, I think the best thing to do is to tell the king of Moab, send down your women. Send your women down to entice them and, 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 and uh, tempt the men of Israel into sinning and beginning to worship the gods of Moab. Turn to Numbers then, 31. Let's go over to chapter 31 while we're here and look at verse 16. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel, the women of Moab, through the counsel of who? Counsel of Balaam. Do you see that? This was Balaam's idea. He was the one that gave counsel to the king of Moab, send the women in. 
and defile, that, defile them that way. To trespass against the Lord in the manner of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. What had happened? Suddenly Israel had opened themselves up to the world. They had said yes to the world. They said, well, they opened up and they began to compromise. They began to compromise. And this is exactly what was happening in the church at Pergamum. What was happening to the, some of the Christians there, they allowed those that were, remained worldly and were part of the, still part of some of the temple uh, rituals and the things and the immoral practices, because uh, one or two of the temples, um, they, they, would, uh, they would give out prostitutes. You could buy a prostitute, and you would go, and part of your worship was to, to have relations with a prostitute at the temple. And the sad thing was there were people in the church, guys in the church, that were doing that very thing. And so they would come to church, and they would be worshiping God, But then when they leave the church during the week, they figured, hey, they're saying, the Nicolaitans are saying it's okay. That God's not going to judge us. It's okay because we're the children of God. So they got sucked into the world and continue worldly practices and immoral practices that they began to accept. And that is the very thing. And, of course, God then judged Israel for that. Now he's going to tell the church, I'm going to have to judge you if you don't do something about this. And it's so easy for we as believers today to compromise. Isn't that the truth? That, we, uh, that there's so much out there, it's so easy to compromise in our life. And so we allow this in, we allow this in. And we still hold to our faith in Christ. We don't deny that, much like the church at Pergamum. But we have allowed licentiousness to come in, or the world to come in and to to, uh, begin to conform us. And of course, we have, have Romans 12 too, right? And be not conformed to what? to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind it all starts here and so go back with me to revelation 2 now and let's finish this here look what jesus says to them so now he says concerning this sin in the church the compromising verse 16 jesus says repent therefore or else i am coming to you quickly And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. There it is again. With the sword of my mouth. Here is that phrase the Lord uses again concerning the sword coming out of the mouth. And when we speak of the sword coming out of the mouth, um, there are two, you know, there are two sides to a sword. Well, when we think of God's word, there are kind of two sides if we made it into a sword. 
there's the one edge, sharp edge, which is the salvation of the Lord. The other side of the sword, we could say, is the judgment side of the sword. That God will judge sin. In fact, uh, turn with me to uh, Revelation 19. Let's go over to Revelation 19, and we see this phrase used here to describe the coming of Jesus Christ back to earth to this wicked world where the Antichrist and all the armies of the world are gathered together in wickedness like as in the days of Noah. But now Jesus is going to return. Remember, we believe that according to the Scriptures that the rapture has already taken place. The church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ is already in heaven at this point and we are coming back with him at this point in Revelation 19 verse 11. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. We know who that is, the Lord Jesus. And in righteousness, he what? Judges and wages war. He's coming to judge sin on the earth. And his eyes are a flame of fire. Upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called what? The Word of God. We know this is the Lord Jesus Christ. For, again, you go back to the Gospel of John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And I believe that this refers to you and me as part of that army. That the the bride of Christ, the church, we are riding back with Jesus Christ on white horses, returning to earth with him where Jesus is going to wipe out the evil nations and the Antichrist with the word of his mouth. With the word of his mouth. Look at verse 15. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Symbolic of something. A sharp sword so that with it he may strike the nations. And he will rule them with the rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Jesus is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. But he's going to bring judgment to the earth. But notice how the judgment comes. It's described as coming from his mouth as a, short, as a sharp sword. And there it is again. That's what Jesus is talking to, to the church. When he talks about the, the word as a sword coming out at a time like this, he's talking about punishment and judgment. And so... We see its relation here in, uh, according to uh, Christ's return. But uh, go back with me now again to chapter 2. If you flip back to Revelation 2 again, we see what he says here. Jesus said, repent. In other words, have a change of mind now about your sin. Therefore, confess it, turn around, turn away from it. Or else, Jesus says to the church, I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them 
with the sword of my mouth. Notice he says them and not you. He's talking about those in the, ch- in the church who have gone to the uh, really, you know, put their arms around the, the Nicolaitans and really taken hold. And he's saying, I'm going to have to judge my church. I'm going to have to bring judgment to the church if there's, if there's not a change in the church, in the people there who are, 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 have gone into the world and yet still come to the church and, and, and pretend to honor me. And so Jesus is talking about a discipline, a judgment to the church. And we read in, in Hebrews about uh, how the Lord disciplines his children. And you and I, as his children, I know this, according to the word of God. Because he loves me, if I choose to go and, and, and delve into the sins of this world and compromise myself and allow myself to become worldly, allow it to set in, there's a point where God is going to say, child, you've gone too far. And therefore, God has his ways of bringing discipline to his children. And you, we read about that when we take communion. You remember what, what, what Paul said about the church? They were taking communion in, in a, a, a blasphemous way. They were desecrating the communion table by the way they, they, were, they were treating it. That he said, and some of you get sick and some of you even, what? Sleep. Others of you sleep, which means die. It means God will take them early off the earth because of, of their sin. So this is what Jesus is saying to the church. He wants a purified church. He wants a church that is, is holy. And you know where that begins? It begins in me. It begins in my heart. You know, we hear over the years, uh, you know, the word revival. Revival. And we pray for revival in our land. You know where I have come to understand where revival starts? And I'm sure many of you have heard this too. It starts with me. There's got to be a revival in my heart where I choose to turn from any sin and anything that the world is offering me and I keep my eyes on Christ and I, I, I seek by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in righteousness it is then that God, it doesn't mean I won't be tested. It doesn't mean that Satan won't come and tempt me. It doesn't mean I won't be persecuted. But I know this, that I will have God's favor on me because I am an obedient child. And so this is what Jesus wants from this church. And then he concludes, verse 17. Jesus then says to them, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice it's not just one church, but this message is to be sent to all the churches. Be careful of compromise. And then Jesus writes at the end of this letter, To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it so first he says 
you who have an ear, a spiritual ear, listen to what the Spirit is saying. And then he speaks again to the true believers in the church. Remember, we had mentioned that uh, we believe that this term overcomer, he who is an overcomer, he who overcomes, is is a true believer, someone who has overcome, uh, overcome sin through the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood. So we are all called overcomers today. And it doesn't mean we're sinless, we're perfect, but we are overcomers in Christ. And so therefore, all these promises to overcomers in all the churches that we read, all the letters, they're not, they're not chosen just for some Christians in heaven, part of the, the body of Christ that will be in heaven and others who aren't. You did this on earth, but you did not. Therefore, no, we will find that all these, these blessings that Jesus says, and to those who overcome, he's talking about the believers who have, uh, are, are going to be in heaven because we're going to find out later on, we're going we're to see proof that that overcomer does refer to all Christians. But he's saying to the true believer, the true believer in the church, what does he say first? He says that I'm going to give you some hidden manna. Now, there's been all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, debates as to what is that hidden manna guess what we don't know so we just we just can only guess but god some but when we think of hidden manna and heavenly manna we can only think of jesus christ and what he said of himself he says i am the bread of what i'm the bread of life and so the bread of life is going to give us something heavenly, some kind of heavenly manna. We don't know what that is. But finally, guess what? You and I, each of us are going to get a white stone given by Jesus himself. And you're going to have a special name he has chosen for you. And it's written on that stone, that white stone. And guess what? No, it's a secret between you and Jesus. That it's a white stone. Notice he says, and I will give them him, the overcomer, a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but him who receives it. What a beautiful promise. Dear Christians, may we leave here tonight with joy that we are the children of God, that we belong to him, but that we leave here being discerning about the, the schemes of the enemy, the schemes of Satan, because Satan's throne is out there and he wants to trip all of us up and somehow try to get us to compromise. May we keep our eyes on the word, keep it hidden in our heart, keep our eyes on Christ. And we will one day be able to stand before him and we will receive reward that he will give us for faithfulness. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord. Father, for reminding us, Lord, that you love us as your church, as your bride, you love us. But because you love us, Lord, you want us to stay pure. Help us to walk in holiness, Lord, before you. Until our Lord Jesus Christ does return to call us home. Thank you, Lord, for these precious truths tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.